Imagine a stranger visiting a church service for the very first time. He was not brought up in the Christian culture, so he knows nothing about Christianity. He is interested to learn, even though he doesn't know anything. He is open. He's engaged. When he comes into the service, he sees the cross. When he sits down, he sits down next to a man, and the man has a cross on his lapel. The woman sitting next to him has a cross on her necklace. Finally, he looks up at the stained glass window, and there too sees a cross. When communion is served, talk is made about the body and blood of Christ. Finally, the service ends with another hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. When the stranger leaves, he is impressed. But he wonders about that. Is it really true that Christians only glory in the cross? Is it really true that the death of someone so long ago is the total focus and that everything else we pour contempt on compared to the cross? He wonders if the talk is not exaggerated a little bit, but he's open to learn. Next week is Easter. We'll talk about the resurrection. It seemed to make sense to me to talk about the cross today. And so, this morning, we'll be going through the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 20, and walking through the events leading up to the cross. You're welcome to turn there. We're going to begin in Matthew 20, verses 17 and beyond. And here is where the cross is predicted. Reads like this. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. The book of Matthew is all about the kingdom of God. And Jesus has been teaching this to his disciples. But he tells them again, perhaps the third time, he will be killed. And even though they've heard it again and again, it's like they never heard it. It's not that they didn't hear the, the sound. They heard the words. But their dreams, their vision, their ambition was so set on the kingdom being set up right then. Why? Because they wanted to be like his junior partners in the kingdom. And so they're thinking of their own benefit, what they want to see. And so when he tells them he's going to die, it just doesn't soak in. One aspiring mother of two uh, disciples brought 
her two sons with her and spoke to Jesus, perhaps at the son's prompting. And she asks something of Jesus. And he says, what is it you want? And she says, when you are in your kingdom, I want my sons to be on your right and on your left. In other words, number one and number two in your kingdom. <laughs> well, what do you think the other disciples thought when they heard the other 10? They were angry. Why? Because they wanted those positions. <laughs> well, some well-meaning Christians have thought that the kingdom was not an option. But clearly, Jesus did offer the kingdom. The Gospel of Matthew is all about this. And Luke 2 makes it clear that Jesus was the coming Messiah, whom they were to expect, the predicted one. But the problem was that on the whole, the Jewish people, and especially the leaders, were not open to receiving Messiah as their king. Christ came offering a kingdom, but he would not force his rule on a disobedient and unyielding people. Jesus made it clear he had a purpose from that point. He said he had come to give his life as a ransom for many. The next thing we see in Matthew is the triumphal entry. Jesus sends his men ahead in the city to get a, a donkey and the foal of the donkey. They place their coats on the backs of these two animals and Jesus rides on one of them into Jerusalem. For those that were watching, those that were aware, Zechariah had predicted this as a sign, one of the many signs that would indicate who Messiah was. Zechariah 9.9 reads this way, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He doesn't ride into Jerusalem on a great war horse. He rides into Jerusalem on a humble donkey, a more fitting sign of the peaceful Messiah that he is. Well, this is the official presentation of Jesus as the Messiah to Jerusalem the son of David, whose right it is to reign. Did all the leaders of Israel rise up and say, Blessed are you, Jesus. Welcome to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, of course not. If they had, their history would have been far different. Instead, they reject him. In fact, the next day it says they come as a group, perhaps they had planned this that night, but they come as a group and they challenge his authority. One steps forward and a, a gifted teacher in the law. and They challenge him. They say, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus knew their hearts. And he said, let me ask you a question. The baptism of John, was it of God? of men. And so they retreat for a little bit and they powwow together and they say, now what, if, how do we answer this? If we say 
John the Baptist was of God, he'll say, well, why didn't you listen to him? Because he spoke of me. I can't answer that. But if we say it was merely of men without divine authority, then the people are going to pick up rocks and start hurling them at us because they think John's a prophet. Now, we can't answer that. So they come back to Jesus and they say, we don't know whose authority he did these things. And so Jesus, knowing that their heart was not open to truth, simply told them, therefore, I won't give you an answer either. Well, because of this rejection, Jesus announces judgment. So now we come to Matthew 23, and this chapter expresses the results of their choice for the past three and a half years. For three and a half years, he's been preaching, extending kindness and patience, bearing with them, answering their questions. Even when they tried to trick him and trap him, he was patient with them. But our choices do have consequences, and theirs did. And so now he pronounces the resulting consequence. Seven woes that he pronounces for hypocrisy and pure evil. And he says, you killed the prophets. Your, your ancestors, they killed the prophets. And they, these people right before Jesus, they would kill the ultimate prophet, Jesus. What was the main thing that Jesus criticized the Pharisees and the leaders for? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. High talk and low walk. More than anything, Jesus does not like hypocrisy. A person puts forth a false appearance of having virtue or religion, but it's not true. Or a person believes in particular things, but they don't follow what they believe. Their behavior does not match their beliefs. By the way, what should we be careful for? We need to be careful. Are Christians capable of doing this? Sure. You know, sometimes very easy as Christians fellowshipping together to get used to the idea that we're God's holy people, and we are, which means we should be holy, but we're not sometimes. One of the things I think we need to do is keep short accounts with God. We need to confess our sins as quickly as they come. It's easy to get into defense mode and want to stand in the way we're behaving, but God wants us to confess our sins. And he says in 1 John, he says, you know, if any man says he doesn't have any sin, he's not telling the truth. So we do stand, and God has a solution for that sin, a cleansing for us. 1 John 1, 9, if any man confesses his sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins on a daily, moment-by-moment -moment basis, restore us to family fellowship, and continue to cleanse us from all sin. So our daily confession is part of the process in which he is sanctifying us. We can't neglect it. We can't be hypocritical by thinking that we are beyond that. Oh, 
We have seen political mudslinging perfected to an art form, haven't we? <laughs> and certainly the Pharisees were engaging in that kind of activity. They said Jesus' miracles were done by the power of Satan. Wow. Well, when Jesus calls them out and pronounces these woes upon them, is he engaging in the same type of activity? Is his heart hypocritical? No. Even in judgment, he is caring and compassionate. Listen to the end of chapter 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. After this, we see Jesus' final sermon. It's the longest recorded sermon we have in Matthew 24 and 25. We call it uh, the Sermon on Mount Olivet, or the Olivet Sermon. It's Jesus' explanation, explanation of the future in light of Jerusalem's rejection of Messiah. Some have interpreted this to be fulfilled completely in 70 AD, when Titus came and he attacked Jerusalem. And Luke does speak to this, I think. But in Matthew, we have judgment upon judgment in such a horrendous way that it could be described as if, if this didn't come to a close, if this time wasn't shortened, no one would be left alive. I don't think that that has happened yet. I think that this is talking about a yet future time. In fact, if you compare it with Revelation chapter 6, the six seals in which God, or Jesus Christ, breaks a seal and judgment is pronounced and that judgment happens on earth, those judgments line up perfectly with Matthew 24. They're talking about the same. And since this is a prediction of the future, and since Revelation is talking about this time and wasn't written until 95 AD or thereabouts, it couldn't have been fulfilled in 70 AD because in 95 AD, it's still in the future. So here we have Jesus' explanation of coming events. And this is a time like no other. The ultimate Armageddon, the catastrophe of catastrophes. And it hasn't happened yet. I believe Jesus' prophecies speak of the future where God pours out judgment on the earth, but the climax, the climax will be Christ's return. So we might ask this question, how is the biblical Armageddon different than, say, the movies that are all use the name Armageddon. What are the movies about? And we, we've seen in many years. They're usually about what? Some catastrophe, some life-ending event on earth in which all of earth is destroyed and history comes to a close. Or at least the potential is there. 
That's what they're all about. So here's a test for you. How is the biblical Armageddon different than the movies that we see? In the biblical Armageddon, it ends after judgment with Christ's return. It ends with the best thing that can possibly happen to this earth happening. The return of Christ in glory. The return of Christ making things right again. So friends, we have hope. It's a glorious thing. After he gives this sermon, he takes his disciples and they go to Gethsemane. They go to this place which is an olive press in the midst of an olive garden. And he takes three of his closest disciples to walk a little further to an olive grove there. And Jesus prays. And the text says Jesus became sorrowful. I think we can understand that as we reflect on what is coming. And he knew what was coming. And he knew how horrendous that would be. We can understand him becoming sorrowful. He told his friends, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. But they slept. Jesus prayed on, my father, if it is possible May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And friends, I think that is the secret of the Christian life. Not as I will, but as the Father wills. And if we could say that in earnestness, the battle is almost won in the Christian life. That was Christ. That was his heart, was to do the will of the Father, no matter what. As we proceed in Matthew, next we come to Maundy Thursday, or Holy Thursday. The night that Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his 12 closest followers, 11 really, and he mandated communion. We're going to serve communion following this message. He gave them the opportunity and the command to eat the bread and to drink wine in order to remember his broken body and shed blood. It was also the night he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. Next, we come to Gethsemane. Uh, I'm sorry, I've talked about that. Well, after Gethsemane, Jesus was arrested. While still speaking to his disciples at Gethsemane, Jesus, uh, Judas arrived, leading a group of soldiers. And he kisses Jesus on the cheek to indicate to them which one to arrest. It's night, and they don't know for sure who he is, so they have his plea plea formerly planned um, way of identifying him. And uh, Peter, to his credit, he wants to defend Jesus, so he takes out a sword, perhaps the knife that they'd used at Passover, 
and he attempts to whack one of the evil guys on the head. Not being very good at his soldiering, he misses, and all he gets is an ear. And Jesus says, put your sword away. If that were the plan, if that were the plan, he could call 12 legions of angelic warriors to his defense. But if he had done that, prophecy would not be fulfilled. And our sins would still be there, unpaid for. Next, we see Jesus before the Sanhedrin. When Jesus is arrested, he's taken to see Caiaphas, the high priest, and various leaders of Israel. The narrator tells us that they were looking for false evidence in order to convict him and put him to death, but they couldn't find any. So finally, out of frustration, Caiaphas demands of him, tell us the truth. I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus answers, yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. At this, they tore their robes and said, He's guilty of blasphemy, and they all agreed to that. So what was the charge in the Jewish court? Blasphemy. He's blasphemed God. But they don't have the authority to put him to death. They have to go to the Romans for permission for that. So they change the charge. And what do they charge him before the Romans? They say, he is guilty of rebellion. He's against Caesar. Pilate, you're his representative. You've got to convict him according to our preferences. You can see their ploys here. Now we come to Good Friday. And I am aware that there are people who have different views. Some believe Christ was crucified on Friday, some on Thursday, some on Wednesday. And I'm not going to explore that today. Good Friday is traditionally the day viewed as the day he died on the cross. Initially, Christians celebrated both the cross and the resurrection together as one event. We see in the book of Acts, it didn't divide the two. But in the fourth century, they started speaking of the cross separate, and they spoke of it as Good Friday. It is good because that is the day that God fulfilled his promise to take away our sins. And finally, we, we come to the crucifixion. According to tradition, Jesus died on Friday, and he was executed by crucifixion, the common form of death for criminals in the Roman Empire. Roman soldiers severely beat and whipped and mocked him. They nailed his hands and feet to a wooden cross. Two other criminals were crucified at the same time. Death usually came after a prolonged period of time, sometimes lasting an excruciating two or three days. But Jesus was able to complete the punishment, complete the payment for all of our sins, 
And once that was done, he was able to dis dismiss his spirit. So when they came to broke, break the legs of the individuals to hasten their death, they didn't have to break his legs. The Bible says that Jesus' death is sufficient payment as the punishment for all mankind's evil. I want to read a longer passage from Matthew 27. Starting in verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. The words sounded like he was speaking of Elijah to them. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the temple, which some say was about four inches thick, was torn from top to bottom. That detail is given, giving us the indication that it was God who did the tearing. And then verse 54. When the centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. The Jewish people, his own race, rejected him. But the Gentiles, seeing all that happened, watching his character, they recognized the truth and who he was, the son of God. After crucifixion, he was buried. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, friends of Jesus, wrapped his body in a linen cloth and buried it that same afternoon in an above-ground grave, a cave that we call a tomb. At this point, I want to give a couple of applications. Jesus, from the Pharisees' point of view, was defeated. They crucified him. He's dead. Problem solved, <laughs> in their point of view. But friends, that was truly the day that death died. A man who was born once, a woman who was born once, can experience physical death, the first death, and then spiritual death, the second death. Spiritual death is separation for all time from God, for those who reject the sacrifice of Christ. But those who receive it by faith in Christ get a pass on the second death. For them, spiritual death is a thing 
not to be feared. The sting of death has been taken away. Jesus' death is no accident, nor was it defeat. It was the plan of God. We may face trials. Some will even have tremendous trials, but that is not the end. Jesus is coming back. Jesus will make wrong things right. Jesus will make the dead live. And Jesus will banish evil and bring in righteousness. We have hope. Would you say that with me? We have hope. Amen. Never doubt the love of Christ for you. Life may bring challenges. People may reject you. Take heart. They rejected him too. Though you face rejection through relationships, divorce, jobs, and more, there is one who will never reject you. You have taken refuge in him. If Jesus died for you, if he lives to make intercession for you to the Father for you, he's not going to leave you. In every situation of every day, he is with you. The one who died for you is no Judas. He will not betray you. He is the faithful one. You can trust him with your eternity, and you can trust him with your life. Beautiful truth from the scriptures. As I shared, we are going to observe communion. In preparation for that, I want to begin by asking you a question. See if this feels true to you. It seems to me that for many of us who have been Christian for years, decades even, we've heard it so many times. We've heard about the death of Christ. We've been here at Easter every year. And I think sometimes we get so used to it, it loses some of it, the sharpness of what actually happened. This is an incredible event. This is what divides history. This is what determines our destiny. This is what gives us hope. And yet, I admit, sometimes it just seems like just one of many doctrines. I mean, we're all human. We have heard it a lot. So I began to wonder what might help it take a fresh impact on us. And so I thought of what if we put ourselves in that position? What if, say, we were right on the verge of death and someone stepped in and helped us? Wouldn't that be a tremendously impacting event for you? Dr. Stephen Bramer, professor and head of the Bible Exposition Department at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he was the person who was in charge over my dissertation project. He had kidney failure decades ago. And his sister stepped up and volunteered to give her brother her kidney. Saved his life for decades. He's, he's been able to travel widely throughout the world and especially in Israel because of the things 
that she did for him. But now, that kidney too is failing. And he is in the final stages right now of kidney failure. He might die. But they've let people know about this event. And people have stepped up and offered their kidney. And so right now, this week, they're trying to identify the best match. And if this goes through, his life will be preserved at great cost to some individual who makes that sacrifice. Wouldn't you say that is significant? But how much more significant is the death of Christ who gave his life, not merely a kidney, but gave his life so that we could have eternity with God in heaven, so we could enjoy that with him. When I think about it in those terms, the death of Christ has much more impact. God sent his son. He sent his son and the son volunteered to take the punishment that we deserve. It was the only way. He takes our sin and dies. And we get his righteousness. Friends, that is the greatest exchange in all of history. And he did it for us, for you, and for me. So now I invite us to do what he exhorted his disciples to do when he had the Last Supper with them. The bread and the cup. I remember the order B before C. And so if you have a cup that has the two elements, I invite you to peel the top of the bread. Take the bread. Take the cup. Remember him. When you're done, if you'll pass the cup to the center aisle. 